This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, Sweden, and here in episode 28, we'll get an exclusive insight into the geopolitical outlook and Arctic strategy of the United States with our special guest, Michael J. Murphy, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nordic, Baltic, and Arctic Security Affairs at the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Deputy Assistant Secretary Murphy is one of the top Arctic officials in the United States, and he joins us here on Polar Geopolitics just a few weeks after the opening of a U.S. consulate in Nook, Greenland, the latest in a series of moves that signal a deepening geopolitical engagement in the Arctic by the United States. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Polar Geopolitics wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Now let's turn to the interview with Michael J. Murphy, which I started by asking him how U.S. Arctic policy has evolved over the past decade, and particularly during the Trump administration. Well, I think I think I want to start in my answer to that question by sort of making an upfront statement about what our policy is, because I think sometimes um, there's some confusion about that. Um, and it's very straightforward and it's very simple. The United States wants a secure and stable Arctic, where our interests, of course, are safeguarded. Our homeland is protected. We are an Arctic state. And Arctic states continue to work cooperatively to address shared challenges. We want, and I know this is a question that a lot of people have, and we'll continue to work to ensure that the Arctic remains a region free from conflict, as well as characterized by respect for national sovereignty, a rules-based order, and constructive engagement by Arctic states and among Arctic states on our shared economic, scientific, and environmental challenges. And I say that because I want to emphasize that we have supported and continue to strongly support the Arctic Council as the premier recognized forum for Arctic governance. That hasn't changed. Now, the world has changed, however, since 1996 when the Arctic Council was established. Today's global environment is much different from the global environment in 1996. And it's characterized by, and you've heard this from many uh, folks inside the administration and inside think tanks across Europe and the United States, by what by, by what we're describing as great power competition. Russia, China, and I'm going to say the West, not the United States, but the United States, Europe, other like-minded countries like Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea. Uh, and this geopolitical environment, it's a global one. Uh, the Arctic isn't immune from the implications of these these new geostrategic challenges that we in the West are confronting. And of course, you know, the Arctic system itself is rapidly changing, diminishing sea ice coverage, diminishing snow cover, uh, melting ice sheets, thawing permafrost. And that is going to create incentives or opportunities for, for Russia and the People's Republic of China to pursue or to potentially pursue uh, agendas in the Arctic that clash with those goals I laid out at the beginning of, of my response about protecting our interest and in ensuring the Arctic remains free from conflict and as well as a region characterized by cooperation. So that's the big change. The, the global environment has changed, which has necessitated not um, a subtraction from our policy, but the addition of those considerations to the considerations that have driven U.S. Arctic policy for the last 20 years. You say that the Arctic is not immune from these wider geopolitical um, 
transformations that have taken place in recent years. But until recently, I mean, analysts used to speak of something they called Arctic exceptionalism, that um, international cooperation in the Arctic, uh, through the Arctic Council and other bodies as well, could somehow be insulated from uh, the geopolitical tensions elsewhere. I mean, like the example of uh, 2014 with Ukraine, there was even during that uh, crisis, there was still constructive cooperation in the Arctic. But if that was ever really the case, this idea of Arctic exceptionalism, has it come to a definitive end with this return of great power competition you speak of? Well, I mean, I'd make two observations. One one sort of a big picture observation. I, I would argue in 1996, you know, with the formation of the Arctic Council, with the Ottawa Declaration and this notion of Arctic exceptionalism, the holiday from geopolitics, if I can put it that way, wasn't just in the Arctic, it was global. Um, it was a very different world. So it may never have been true to say the Arctic was exempt from great power politics because in the 90s and the early part of this century, we weren't engaged in great power politics really anywhere in the world. The changes that have occurred over the last eight or nine years have been the result of decisions taken by by Russia and by the People's Republic of China. Uh, and they're looking to overturn uh, that rules-based international order, which they believe uh, is in their interest. We would argue that that's a mistake, that the rules-based international order has served all of the global community well, not just the region of the Arctic. So that's the first point I'd like to make. The second I would make is I don't think the fact that uh, we have challenges uh, globally with China or with Russia automatically presumes or, or means that we're not going to continue to do cooperative work in the Arctic with the Arctic states themselves through the Arctic Council and elsewhere. Uh, you are correct to point out that Russia's decision uh, to invade Ukraine and annex Crimea, to fund a proxy war there, coupled with the other actions it took uh, before then in Georgia and, and other places since then, uh, have created tension in the relationship between certainly the West, uh, the transatlantic community and Russia. Rightly so. Russia needs to change its behavior. That's not acceptable behavior uh, at all in today's day and age. But I think it's interesting to note that while we have had those problems, we have been able to cooperate with Russia in the Arctic, in the Arctic Council. So a couple of examples. We continue to work on search and rescue uh, with the Russians in the Arctic. We continue to work through uh, the six, or I think it's six, and they have the number wrong, you know, working groups uh, that the Arctic Council has established with the Russians on, on joint projects. Um, we we worked with the Russians bilaterally to present to uh, the International Maritime Organization some codes for sailing or navigating the, the Bering Straits and Bering Sea. So um, uh, I think we can still do all that work, and I think that work is still happening. Whether it becomes more complicated or not, I think is a function of whether or not Russia or if you're talking about China – wish to make it more complicated. It is certainly not in our interest, in the United States' interest, and I know that our Arctic allies and partners share this view of complicating all that. But I, I think it's important if we're gonna if we're going to get into how did this happen to look at where the problem is emerging from. Um, but luckily to date it's the Arctic has still have been been relatively free from the kind of tensions you've seen in places like uh, Europe or, or the South China Sea. We want to keep it that way. Last year felt a bit like a uh, 
a bit of a watershed at the uh, ministerial meeting in uh, Finland. Uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo made a speech uh, at the Arctic Council where he really explicitly introduced geopolitics to a body that has largely avoided such issues, calling out uh, China and Russia, as, as we are discussing here now as well. I mean, do you think that the Arctic Council, given that, uh, do you think the Arctic Council needs to be modified in any way as a result of this new strategic reality that the uh, State Department has articulated? Um, no, I don't. Uh, you know, the Arctic states um, uh, do not believe, A, that the uh, Arctic governance uh, should uh, be broadened to the non-Arctic states. I think that's a view that's held by Russia and the United States and the other Arctic uh, Council members. Um we all agree that uh, the decision, I think, to keep security issues out of uh, the Arctic Council was the right one. There's no push to change that, not on the part of the United States either. There are some forums like the Arctic Coast Guard Forum and the Arctic Security Forces Roundtable where some of these issues can be discussed. Um, I also would, just to, you know, point of clarification, I, I know this is a subtle difference, but it matters to, uh, to the United States. I mean, the Secretary was conscious that he was making his speech around the Arctic Council, but he didn't make it in the Arctic Council, and that was deliberate. He wanted to put uh, these issues on the agenda, the Arctic agenda, if you will, but the council then, the council at the time, and the council continues continues to focus on non-security issues. But as I said a bit earlier, um, you know, the the region isn't immune from geopolitical change. Um, That's... um, it's just the way of the world. It's not a good or an ill. It is the way things, it's the way things are. Um, and I think the secretary was right to elevate these concerns. Uh, and, you know, we've seen actions uh, by the Russians and actions by the PRC that are disconcerting uh, in the Arctic uh, that mirror uh, some of the things we've seen in other parts of the world. And I think we all need to be sensitized to them if we're concerned about protecting the Arctic and what we've been doing there over the last 10 or 15 years. So we don't wake up one day and say, wait a second, how did that happen? Uh, As we have in other parts of the world when, uh, you know, we've seen uh, Chinese uh, influence in international institutions lead to unhelpful outcomes, for example, or uh, we've not paid attention to uh, Russian military buildups or actions and exercises that have implications for how we ought to be looking at defense and deterrence posture in the high north. So, it, it's. I think the secretary was right to sound. I don't want to say sound the alarm. That maybe is a little too dramatic. But certainly say, folks, we need to talk about this too. Not just about science. Not just about the environment. Not just about you know navigation and fisheries. All of which are important and all of which we should continue doing. And the secretary stressed that in his speech. But these other issues matter as well. You know, one of the hot spots uh, of the Arctic that has uh, received a lot of attention the last uh, year or so, well, of course, is uh, is Greenland, where uh, the United States has just opened yes. up a new consulate in in Nook, the uh, the capital. What, Michael, are the short, medium, and long term strategies the State Department and the United States in general has for advancing U.S. interests in Greenland? And is making Greenland a part of the United States still a U.S. objective? Of course, that was the other big story from last year: the uh, the uh, talk about purchasing Greenland, whether through an outright purchase or some other means. That's still a goal for the U.S. No, there's no goal or no plan uh, being discussed in the United States government to purchase Greenland or make Greenland part of the United States. Um, We want to have a partnership with Greenland. That's true. Uh, We have actually worked very closely in the run-up to the opening of the consulate in Nook uh, with the Kingdom of Denmark, with Greenland, uh, we've also worked very closely with uh, the government uh, of Greenland and, of course, the government of Denmark to talk about 
how can the United States partnership with Greenland, how can we manifest it beyond what already exists now? I mean, you, as you know, we already we have a military facility there. We used to have a consulate there that was open between 1940 and 1953. So this is a, we view this as a return as opposed to uh, something that's completely new. And we've been working with Greenland through the permanent committee uh, and through other uh, fora in the past. So the goal here is to enhance our engagement in the Arctic. Uh, and specifically with Greenland. This is in part um, getting back to our broader Arctic strategy and our goals for the Arctic region in terms of stable uh, stable and secure Arctic where U.S. interests are safeguarded and our homeland is protected and we all work cooperatively. We need to have presence. We need to be uh, more involved. And, and that uh, can be something simple like uh, expanding uh, the size of uh, an embassy in Norway, for example, or something more elaborate and newsworthy, uh, like uh, what we're doing in Nook. That the the thing I want to stress there, I think that's very important, is from the beginning, um, what we've been doing has been in partnership with the with the government of of Greenland. Uh, I was in Greenland last October with several other senior officials. We had some conversations about uh, their interests, how they would like to see the partnership development what areas they might want to see us engage with them on, uh, both, you know, in terms of dialogue, but also, uh, you know, some some specific programmatic partnership engagement. And that's what's been driving it. It's a platform for a long-term investment, diplomatic, economic, you know, bilateral in Greenland. And that's that's the goal. Um, but there is no, there's no ulterior motive, no... Uh, no, no hidden purpose associated with wanting to make Greenland part of the United States. Can you maybe elaborate a little further on what uh, some of your um, projects and other uh, priorities you have in Greenland in terms of how you will develop this relationship, and why? Um, why now? Was there some particular something you observed that um, made uh, made you think that uh, we need to now increase our presence, particularly in Greenland? Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and, and and you know what I think you know a lot of people may be driving at when they when they ask about that sort of thing is some of the behavior we've seen from uh, the PRC in the region. Um, you know, we've never objected to the idea that uh, the PRC could play uh, a role in terms of an economic, commercial, scientific role in the Arctic. They do, uh, they are observers of the Arctic Council, for example. But we've always argued it needs to be transparent. Uh, the engagement needs to be rules-based. And investments need to be, they can't be the kind of debt trap diplomacy or weaponization of state capitalism that we've seen from uh, China in the past or in the present, for that matter. And, you know, the, the, there have been some actions or activities by, by the PRC, the, the effort to uh, purchase the port in uh, East Greenland, the, the, the desire to want to invest in what we would argue in the Danes, and, and I think the Greenlanders recognize as critical infrastructure in the form of the airfields there. That it was kind of a little bit of a wake-up call. I mean, I think one of the things we're seeing with regards to the PRC across the board not just in the Arctic, but in other regions of the world, in particular in the wake of COVID, is that a lot of our assumptions about how uh, engagement with the PRC, which were formed in the 90s and persisted into the early part of the century, haven't really panned out um, for lots of different reasons. And we now need to take a look at, at so-called Chinese soft power tools, uh, which often, as we've learned, have a very sharp edge 
when they're deployed by the PRC and be much more sensitive to whether or not, you know, the PRC is using its money and its companies or its workers to secure control of critical infrastructure uh, that might become the basis for a permanent military presence, as has been the case in other parts of the world, uh, whether or not it's using its bullying and extortionist tactics like they tried to do in the Faroe Islands with regards to the 5G network there. So, you know, we don't want that to happen in the Arctic. We want to see Greenland and other Arctic states develop in a manner that, that benefits their inhabitants, that's sustainable, and, and that protects their own communities and interests. And, you know, we have, there's a, there's a, there's a geopolitical interest for us in Greenland because it's it's extremely close to the United States. In fact, I looked this up a few weeks ago. It's it's only 1,851 miles from New York City to Nook by Air. It's it's 2,790 miles from New York City to L.A., Los Angeles by car. So Greenland is really, in many ways, our neighbor. Um, it's also positioned strategically in the so-called Greenland Ice and UK gap. Uh, which matters immensely to the United States and to the transatlantic community because that's uh, a critical uh, juncture in, you know, the defense and deterrence uh, thinking that we have should there be a crisis in Europe that we need to respond to, uh, something that NATO pays a lot of attention to, for example. So we have we have all of those geostrategic geopolitical interests. In our conversations with the Greenlanders, what they, what they said to us uh, is, you know, look, we want to develop. We want to protect our environment. We want to develop sustainably. Um, we're looking for American investment. We want to kind of let's take the mining sector. We're going to get investments in our mining sector. We want it to be uh, transparent. Uh, we want it to be, uh, you know, the companies to practice uh, good environmental stewardship. Uh, we want to make sure the projects are competitive. Um, and they've asked if, if we could provide additional support to help facilitate those kinds of um, investments. They've talked to us about tourism, and uh, tourism was the wedge issue that the Chinese used with the airports and the and the port, for example, in, in Greenland. And we're going to look at how we can, first of all, uh, with them, take a look at the economic growth and community development potential uh, in the tourist sector in Greenland, how we can uh, then support uh, that going forward. And we're doing some things uh, in business training and education uh, to help promote uh, market-based economic growth and stability. And these ideas, these categories of assistance, if I can put it that way, or partnership, uh, were developed with the Greenlanders. You know, it was a basis of a back and forth. It wasn't something we pulled up uh, out of thin air on our own. Uh, they asked about it, um, and they wanted our support and uh, help with it, and we agreed. Would you say that uh, the Greenlanders have um, a predisposition or preference to work with the United States and other Western countries as opposed to China? I think the Greenlanders are interested in developing uh, their economy and their people in a manner that most benefits uh, them, uh, that respects their culture, respects the environment, uh, and respects the values that we've had in the West. Greenland is part of our community of the West and has been for years. And quite frankly, I think we offer that, and not just the United States, but other Europeans and Canadians as well offer that in a way that, quite frankly, the Chinese and the PRC do not. Uh, and I think you can point to their behavior in the South China Sea, the nature of uh, the investments in, in Sri Lanka. We saw what happened with the port there. Uh, and we can point to actual examples where, you know, we do better. And the West, if you will, is a, is a better, more reliable partner over the long term. And we have to work hard at that. We have to talk about that. And we have to, you know, 
remind people of that because the PRC is able to do things like uh, weaponizing state capitalism by, you know, uh, offering deals that are too good to be true, a lot of easy money and debt trap diplomacy out there. And the United States government has been talking about those challenges for the last several years, uh, quite vocally, globally, not just in, in the Arctic, but around the world. You mentioned Iceland a moment ago. Um, it's another country with some similarities, perhaps, to Greenland, a uh, large uh, U.S. military facility there, uh, also in this uh, Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. And uh, another country that China seems to have identified as a place to exert influence. Is that something that you're concerned about uh, there with the, the large Chinese embassy, the opening up of Chinese uh, uh, science stations there in Iceland? Is that something that you're trying to counter as well? Yeah, yeah I, yes, is the short answer. Um, we are aware of the, you know, the interest in Ipina Fjordor and the potential problems that poses, the effort by the Chinese businessmen to buy up a, a bunch of land, um, you know, the Chinese research station, uh, you know, the potential for dual use or other non-purely scientific activities to go on. Um, we've sought to enhance our bilateral relationship with the Icelanders as well over the last several years. And I think it's been visible in, in the number of high-level visits there. Uh, I mean, the Secretary of State went there. I was proud to, to be part of helping persuade him to go. Uh, and it was the first visit by a Secretary of State in quite a long time. The Vice President traveled there. Uh, we've, had, we've begun an economic dialogue, uh, which is chaired by the State Department and their MFA, uh, conversations about how we can deepen our economic partnership. Uh, all of that is is part of a renewed a renewed interest in our part, renewed understanding in our part that this region of the world uh, is important, strategically important, and that we have valued partners there that we'd like to have deeper and stronger relationships with. And of course, you know, we are also working with Iceland to deal with the challenges that the Russians are now posing in, you know, in the Arctic region, the high north, the Greenland Islands, the UK gap. Um, you know, we, we assume the days of having to engage in anti-submarine warfare and, you know, air policing were over at the end of the Cold War. And uh, we've had to resume, NATO has had to resume some of those operations. Uh, we had to reestablish the second fleet in the United States in order to ensure that the North Atlantic uh, was an area where we had situational awareness and control and were able to, in the crisis, God forbid, get our forces across the Atlantic uh, to Europe if that was what's required. And all of that reflects uh, what I said at the beginning of the conversation, which is the you know, the changing nature of the world in which we live. Um, it's, it's unfortunate uh, that the Russians have behaved in the way they behaved and the PRC is behaving in the way it's behaving. But we would be unwise uh, to ignore it and not to respond in ways to safeguard uh, Western interests, ours and our allies. Of course, NATO was made to uh, contain the Soviet Union and, and Russia. Uh, today, with Chinese uh, exerting more um, influence uh, around the world, in the Arctic in particular, is uh, is NATO's mission going to take that into account as well to somehow contain Chinese influence in uh, in the North Atlantic and in the Arctic? Um, NATO is looking at China uh, and the challenges it poses uh, to our security in the transatlantic security space, not just in the Arctic, but right across right across the whole area of operations, if I can put it that way, uh, for the alliance. And that was one of the major outcomes of the London uh, leaders meeting last year in December. Uh, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but if you go back and look at the, the declaration, short, but it contains some significant language. And what, some of that was about China and the need to take a look at the challenges that China poses to NATO. 
you know, to the United States, Canada, uh, and our European allies. And that's what it's doing. And there are a whole series of conversations and work streams that are now underway at NATO, taking a look at things like what are our vulnerabilities in critical infrastructure, for example? What are our vulnerabilities in resilience as they relate to our ability uh, to, to do the missions that NATO has set for itself? And what do we need to do to address them? Now, we don't have all the answers to those things yet. Uh, that work just began earlier this year. And, and to be very honest, COVID has thrown off the timetables of some of this, like it has everything else around the globe. Uh, but COVID itself was an eye-opening experience for Europe and the United States in the way we, we saw supply chain vulnerabilities we hadn't thought about, disinformation campaign, campaigns from the Chinese, but also the Russians. Uh, and, you know, of course, the behavior of the Chinese vis-a-vis uh, concealing nature of the problem and and not uh, being transparent enough, which uh, I think uh, contributed greatly to the, the situation the world finds in today with regards to the pandemic. So I think we are all waking up to this challenge and NATO, like every other uh, Western institution, is beginning to take steps to deal with it. One of the emerging thoroughfares of the Arctic is the Northern Sea Route. How does the U.S. and the State Department look upon Russia's development of the NSR and also this uh, idea of the uh, polar Silk Road that China has been promoting uh, recently? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, you know, we um, we recognize that, you know, as I said at the beginning, uh, changing uh, environmental conditions are going to open up opportunities, commercial opportunities in the Arctic. And shipping is one of those areas where that's that's already beginning to happen with the northern sea route. Um, and we've been supportive of the objective of ensuring that navigational safety and environmental protection is part of any sort of northern sea route scheme. But we have indicated to the to the Russians that we have concerns about some of what they're proposing or some of what they're claiming they can be able to do uh, because we do not believe it's consistent with uh, international law as reflected in the law of the sea convention. Now, the United States has argued since 1983 that we see the law of the sea convention as reflecting customary law, international law, with regards to the uses of the ocean. And so it's binding on us and other states. And I say that because, you know, we have not ratified the convention itself. But we've, uh, we have some concerns about what Russia's up to. We, the requirements to obtain Russian permission to enter uh, and transit their exclusive economic zone and territorial sea is a problem. Uh, we think they're mischaracterizing uh, the international straits that form part of the Northern Sea Route uh, as Russian internal waters. Uh, their scheme does not address the need to exempt sovereign immune vessels. And, and we we told the Russians this in a written diplomatic note in 2015. Uh, we asked them to clarify uh, and to work uh, through this in a manner that is consistent with international law. Uh, we've also suggested that they consider submitting some of the relevant portions of uh, what they're proposing to the International Maritime Organization uh, for consideration and adoption in much the same way that we and Russia worked together in the past, as I mentioned earlier, uh, developing and submitting a proposal to the IMO on the Bering Strait and the Bering Sea. Um, now, the Russians have not listened to us to date, but we continue to make that point. We don't oppose, uh, though, commercial development along Russia's Arctic littoral. That, you know, we can understand why Russia uh, would want to see economic development along its uh, the Arctic littoral. That, that's, and that's perfectly legitimate uh, activity. And regarding this idea of the Polar Silk Road, which in some ways might oh. overlap a little bit with the NSR, do you, do you see that as also a legitimate framing of uh, Chinese uh, expansion into the Arctic? Yeah, the th- I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> I left the Polar Silk Road out in my, my deal to go through the NSR. But, um, 
I'll go back to what I said earlier. Chinese engagement, the PRC engagement in the Arctic is fine if it's transparent, it's rules-based, it respects the, the norms of behavior and you know, whether it's navigation or commercial investment uh, that exists in the Arctic and globally. And the concern that we have with China is not the polar Silk Road per se, it's what they're doing with their investment tools. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, I, I've said this before, and I, there's really, it's a blunt way to say it, but I think it's important. They're weaponizing their state capitalism in order to secure control of critical dual-use infrastructure, ports, airports, telecommunications networks. I mentioned the threats uh, that were issued by the Chinese ambassador, the PRC ambassador, uh, regarding uh, 5G in the Faroe Islands. That kind of behavior is, is, is deeply problematic. We, we've heard the, at one point the PRC was objecting to some of what Norway was trying to do to ensure the integrity of the Svalbard Treaty ensure, and ensure that the island remains a base for only legitimate scientific research. Now, they were persuaded to back off on some of this by the Norwegians, uh, but the noises were unhelpful. So we have to, we have to be mindful as we look at what the, the PRC is doing of its practices elsewhere in the world, the way it's used money and companies uh, to establish uh, not just an economic or commercial presence, but then to transition that into a permanent security presence, uh, which is at odds with the long-term interests of the Arctic states, uh, including the United States. And I think if we don't make assessments based on what we see, what we have seen from Chinese behavior over the last decade, and you know, again, what we're seeing in the present day, right now, in terms of the way they're handling COVID, then we'd be making a mistake. Uh, we can't assume that their intentions are good uh, here. I, I wish I didn't have to say that. Um, but again, I go back to what I said at the beginning of the conversation. That's, that's the world we live in today. And so that's what we need to do. The last few years, I've seen a lot of um, major Chinese investments in Russian um uh, energy um, extraction in a generally a, a closer relationship between uh, China and Russia. They describe it as a strategic partnership. Do you see that as uh, that particular relationship as, as a threat to U.S. interests in the Arctic and elsewhere? Um, uh, no. I mean, it's true uh, that, you know, Russia and China share some common geopolitical views. Both of them oppose the rules-based international order that was created and sustained by the West and so important to us and our allies. Uh, and yes, they both see the Arctic region as important to their long-term economic uh, interests. But most of the Russian uh, PRC cooperation has been, as you point out, economic and commercial. Some interest, joint interest in the Northern Sea Route, and you mentioned the energy investments and infrastructure investments in Yamal, and I think that's a, the Yamal Peninsula, that's exactly right. There hasn't been really, uh, in my judgment, any meaningful military cooperation between the two states in the Arctic to date. Um, and I think they're, one of the reasons uh, for that is because, you know, though they have the common interest, uh, let's say in Yamal, for example, Russia and Chinese interests in the Arctic are not identical. Uh, and there are friction points between them. Russia, like the other, well, Russia, first of all, tightly guards its sovereignty in the Arctic generally. Uh, labels it a privileged sphere of interest. Um, and it likes to keep discussions about Arctic issues among Arctic states. Um, they have the same interest we do, and all the Arctic Council members have. You know, governance questions are for the Arctic Council and Arctic Council member states. 
Uh, and every one of the eight believe that. Uh, in fact, Russia often prefers to have an even smaller format, a so-called Arctic 5 format, the literal states uh, body. In the, the Lewis Declaration from 2008, the Chinese, the PRCs claimed the opposite. The PRC has declared itself a near-Arctic state, which we reject, and as have the other Arctic states. There's Arctic states and non-Arctic states. There's no such thing as a near-Arctic state. And it signaled its intention to want to play a role in Arctic governance. And the Arctic Council, which includes Russia, of course, all disagree with that. So, you know, I can see some coming together in some of those areas that I mentioned in the commercial sphere. But I I don't see the long term alignment of strategic interests that would prompt me to say as an American diplomat that there's a shared threat or challenge from them. Uh, There are challenges from Russia and the Arctic to the United States and its partners and allies. And there are challenges from, from China. Some of those overlap, but generally speaking, they're different. To round things off, uh, we haven't uh, really touched upon environmental issues. And it seems like in, in okay. some of the recent uh, public statements by by yourself and other uh, State Department officials, there hasn't been that much talk about protecting the Arctic environment and mitigating climate change, even though these are very important issues for the Arctic Council. Do you see that as being the proper balance when it comes to um the U.S. priorities in the Arctic uh, between economic exploitation, um, homeland security, but also bringing in the, the uh, environmental aspects as well? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And, I, and I, I would go back to something I said at the beginning. We've been engaged for the last uh, 10 years or longer since the founding of the, the Arctic Council on all, of the, I mean, on all of the issues you just identified. I mean, we're not seeking to stop or end the work that we've been doing uh, on the environment uh, or the efforts we've been taking to mitigate climate change. And I'll come to the specifics in a minute. But what we are suggesting is that there are other areas that have not been emphasized or have been of concern uh, to the Arctic states that we need to consider in the context of the new world that we're, we're finding ourselves in. But if you take a look at what we're doing, uh, there's a lot more going on than I think people appreciate. I mean, just recently, the, the Arctic Council Agreement on Enhancing International Scientific Cooperation in the region has come into force. And we played a big role, we the United States, in concluding that agreement. Uh, the work that was done uh, to, to secure an agreement to prevent unregulated high seas fisheries in the Central Arctic Ocean was, a, was something we played a big role in and just came into, we just ratified it last year. Um, you know, we've made tremendous progress reducing our black carbon emissions, which are particularly important in an Arctic context. Uh, they're well below 2013 levels and are on, on track uh, to be nearly half by 2025. And it's, we've done better than any other Arctic state in that way. The National Science Foundation, uh, one of its 10 big ideas uh, is, you know, navigating the new Arctic. And they've been investing about $100 million a year in Arctic research each, on average each year, and that's still going on. Um, and there are other programs that are happening that are larger than just the Arctic. We've spent a half a billion dollars in the United States on sustainable landscapes work to restore forests and other lands. And we've made progress increasing agricultural production by, by cutting our environmental footprint in half. And of course, our emissions are down in the United States uh, significantly, uh, even as we continue to grow the economy. So my point here is you know, the the introduction of the new stream of work, if I can put it that way, the, the need to now focus on these geopolitical challenges does not mean we have stopped 
or are stopping or will stop the work that I just described. That's all going on. It still continues. And the secretary was quite clear on this in his speech in Finland. All the work that we're doing on, you know, science, uh, environmental conservation, search and rescue, uh, that kind of thing is important. We're still doing it. But we need to think about these other things. So I don't think one precludes the other. I think uh, we can do both. And we have been doing both. Um, but we've been talking about the first a little bit more because it's the newer element, if you will, or the newer item on the agenda in our Arctic policy. And I think we, we are doing that in part because we need to raise awareness. You know, we, too, uh, in the United States, had some policies and some assumptions about uh, the PRC, for example, that proved to be wrong. And we weren't, we weren't right. We all made a bet in the late uh, 90s, early part of this century that, that turned out not to be a good one. And so uh, we have to adjust to that, uh, to this new reality. And the Arctic is, is one of those places where we need to make those adjustments. Do you think, just one last final question, do you, do you think this um, this increased uh, interest and activity in the Arctic on the part of the United States, is this something that's going to endure or is this a, a temporary a blip or do you see this as a long-term uh, priority for the United States at this point? I think it's a long-term priority. I mean, uh, you know, I will I'll say something that I'm, I'm probably not supposed to say, but, you know, administrations um, will change. We may have a second Trump administration. We may have a new Biden administration. Um, there are a lot of continuities in American foreign policy, uh, and they get overlooked uh, in the discussions of, of personalities. You know, I think the world woke up to the Russia challenge in 2014. Uh, maybe it should have woken up earlier. Uh, but in 2014, it certainly did. I think uh, there's been a lot in the last year and a half of waking up to the PRC challenge, particularly COVID. And I don't think that's going to change uh, in November. It certainly won't change in the second Trump administration. And I don't think it'll change, uh, you know, if we get a new Democrat administration, because uh, what we see here is, you know, these are enduring U.S. interests uh, and emphasis on the word enduring. So I don't think this is a blip. Uh, I think what uh, the current administration do, is doing in terms of laying a foundation for enhanced Arctic engagement is very important, and I think it's to its credit. Okay, Michael J. Murphy, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nordic, Baltic, and Arctic Security Affairs at the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs at the uh, U.S. State Department. Thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. It's been an extremely uh, informative and fascinating discussion. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 